Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, we welcome Ed Shute. He's the author of Gravel Ride Scotland. Many of you frequent listeners of the podcast will know I'm a big fan of the idea of gravel travel. So when this book came across my desk, I was super excited to dig in. I hadn't thought much about riding in Scotland. And after seeing some of the pictures and reading some of the descriptions of these rides, it's definitely on my list of places to go. We dig in a little bit about the history of gravel roads in Scotland, how Ed came to the sport of gravel cycling, and what inspired him to write this great resource guide for all of us. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes so everybody knows how to find it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation with Ed. Before we jump in, I need to thank this week's sponsor, our friends at Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is literally a product that I take every day. I discovered Athletic Greens many years ago as I was recovering from my treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was looking for something that had the vitamins, minerals, and, and probiotics that I needed to kind of just give me baseline support. After I was through that difficult period of my life, I realized that this was sort of a baseline thing I needed for all my athletic endeavors as well. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. It's a special blend of ingredients to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, and aging. All the things. I went out on a wet ride with my friend Jason on Sunday of this week. We got caught out there on our gravel bikes and really took a little bit of a punishing day from a weather perspective. I was pretty drained. And actually, when that happens to me, I come back and I take a second cup full of athletic greens, just figuring I'm going to just top it off when my energy is depleted. It's something that I mix with ice and shake up, so it's pretty simple. It's something I travel with in little packets. It's pretty easy to get into a routine. And for me, I've just always felt comfortable that, again, I'm covering my nutritional bases I encourage you to check it out to see if it's something that might fit for you. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. With that business from our friends out of the way, let's jump right into my interview with Ed. Hey, Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Cheers. Where are you located today? So I'm just south of Edinburgh in Scotland, so a little town called Peebles. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. for, for the listener, this is all going to come together, why it's important that he's in Scotland and what we're going to be talking about today, as I mentioned in the intro we always like to start off, Ed, just by getting a little bit about your background and, and maybe how you discovered cycling and when off-road cycling became a passion of yours. 
Yeah, so for those who, who know accents, I've not got a Scottish accent. So I'm actually, I grew up in the southeast of England, in the east, which is pretty flat. So I didn't really get into kind of mountain biking and off-road riding hugely until I was probably about 17 or 18. I just grew up riding road bikes, doing time trials, and then realized that was quite a good base, I guess, for doing mountain biking. So I started doing a bit of cross-country racing in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, I guess, and then just got the bug for off-road riding. So, so as all good cyclists, I chose my university or college based on where the best biking was and, and that's kind of what, what what took off for me i guess my mountain biking kind of passion were you staying in the uk for university yeah so i just went to the north of england a town called york which is great yeah it's a great spot to stop actually visiting england because it's got loads of history but it's also surrounded by hills really nice mountain biking terrain as well yeah the course was, was a small consideration but yeah it was just the, the perfect spot for doing lots of cycling really and the UK obviously has got such a rich history of cycling across all disciplines, including mountain biking. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, you kind of get pockets, I guess, of real passion for road riding and mountain biking. Where I am now in Scotland is, is huge of mountain biking. We have a lot of Injury World Series mountain bikers based here and cross-country riders coming up through the youth ranks as well. So it's a real buzz here. And I, I guess, yeah, like Edinburgh, just north, has got a really good road scene. So yeah, it's, it's always a pocket of of cycling or some kind it seems wherever you are in the country which is yes yeah, great it's great to see and at university were you studying uh riding as a discipline no I, I studied mountain biking indirectly actually so um it all fits together no i was doing kind of uh, applied economics which was focusing on environmental issues and, and mountain biking kind of fit, fitted into that through forestry management sorry it's again boring probably but yeah so I actually ended up doing a dissertation on mountain biking and the impacts of mountain biking, which was, yeah, it was just great. It's great how it all worked out. Yeah, amazing. And then from I understand you spent some time abroad at some point after that. Yeah, so that that was kind of the last time I lived in England for, yeah, pretty much the last time I lived in England, actually, thinking about it. Yeah, so I left from university, went traveling, and then I got a working visa to Canada. So I, I went to uh, Southeast Asia, then worked in British Columbia and Canada in mountain biking in the summer, helping the, one of the ski resorts set up a bike park in the summer, which was really cool. So I got a lot of riding out there. Uh, yeah, I actually loved it and stayed out there for a bit and then just got kind of the ski bug as well. So I ended up doing ski seasons in New Zealand and then in Europe as well. So I got that. And then, yeah, the passion for cycling, I guess, came back again when I moved back to Scotland from France. And yeah, that's, that's kind of where I really got, got stuck into cycling again, I guess. And at what point did gravel cycling intersect with your passion for cycling i'd always been into mountain biking and i think what kind of took me that next kind of level or backwards towards kind of gravel riding for mountain biking was kind of touring and long distance riding so i got into doing these massive trips so i had this amazing job which was eight months of the year so i had four months off so i spent those four months basically doing big tours so i cycled to istanbul for three consecutive years i think it was in a row across europe and then in the second year i carried on riding and i was just trying to do that more and more on gravel, gravel ride routes and gravel tracks so I could get away from the roads really and, and get into some more remote places. And it just seemed a great way of exploring. And that was kind of at the same point that manufacturers were getting into this idea of gravel bikes as a thing and, and adventure bikes. And I worked with a UK bike manufacturer to kind of support them developing one of these kind of gravel adventure bikes as they were at the time. And it just went hand in hand. And as I got that bike, it then got me more and more doing these tours pretty much all on gravel roads, um, gravel tracks in Central Asia a lot of the time as well. I did about four trips to Central Asia, um, getting kind of stuck into gravel riding in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan and places like that. So that's, yeah, that's where I got the gravel bug from. Really wow. Nice. 
with with that type of touring terrain were you what type of setup were you creating on your bike you said you worked with a manufacturer what was your dream setup for the type of riding that you were doing at that point well just before i did that i was in canada and i saw the tour divide races and they were just starting to use bike packing bags and those kind of saddle packs and bar bags which now we see everywhere but at the time were it really caught my eye and i was like wow that's the solution to kind of the touring i'm doing and ditching the panniers which always break the racks come loose they wobble they bounce i was you know i was looking for something else and i approached um a company called apodura in the uk i was just kind of designing these bags one of the first ones certainly over here to, to be doing it and yeah just seeing the solution to what i was doing and it, it means you have to reduce your kit because you've got a saddle bag a frame bag and a bar bag and trying to get into some pretty remote places and as we know now it, it can be done but at the time it, it took quite a lot of head scratching how you could get your kit this is almost 10 years ago now how you could get your kit into these small bags and i was kind of looking at different tents and all the setup that we now take for granted a bit to get it in there and yeah it just works so well and, and i think that's why it's, it's taken off so much in the kind of 10 years since really yeah 100 percent. we've had the team at apertura on the podcast before and I, the the evolution of bags from when we were kids in terms of panniers down to what is now on the bikes today is just incredible. The bikes can be so rideable and so much fun with that, with those bags on versus once you put a pannier on back in the day, the bike felt like a different type of beast and maybe it was good for riding in a straight line. But if you wanted to go off road with it, it became a little bit limiting. Yeah. I remember the first tour, big tour we did was North to South of New Zealand, um, which is always a good place to start touring as well. It's a really good country to do it. And then I let set off from Auckland. And the bike was so back heavy with the panniers, I couldn't get the front wheel down. It was just wheeling almost down the street. And I, I was just scratching my head how I'm going to get this bike around New Zealand. So just that kind of everyone does, I guess. When they do the first tour, they have way too much stuff. And it was all packed badly. And yeah, that was quite a long time ago now. So yeah, each trip you kind of evolved, don't you, I guess, in your learning and equipment yeah. set up as well. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, like the equipment with the disc brakes and the wider tires has really just made the overall experience so much better. Yeah, and for me, I'm I'm pretty tall, so I'm six foot four. So I I know when there's a headwind as well. It's fair to say. So having the drop bars on a gravel bike makes a huge difference for me to get that kind of tuck in, and then you're kind of tucking in behind the bar bag and the saddle bag. Everything's in line, and uh, yeah, some of those Central Asian trips we've had ridiculous headwinds, and and it feels like you, with panniers of the first trips we did, it kind of felt like it was literally pushing you backwards. You weren't making progress. So having those drop bars, those bags, and me kind of like getting in an aero tuck in kind of the middle of nowhere. It was such a better way to do it. Right, right. And when did you ultimately end up settling in Scotland? Yeah, so I did a, quite a few of these trips. Like I said, I was working, it was actually out of France in the end when the UK was part of the EU and we could work in France easily, but we won't get into that. And then I moved back to Scotland to get a job in, well, I didn't have a job actually. No, <laughs> I moved back to Scotland just to, getting a bit homesick, I guess, of, of being in the UK. So we, we came back and set up where I am now in, in Peebles in the south of Scotland because the site is really good here. Yeah, just stuff that we needed to kind of a change and to come back. And, and my wife was looking for a, a different job as well, to be honest. So so we got here and yeah, and then we just kind of yeah love Scotland and the riding we can do here as well. And were you starting to see the rise of, in terms of the number of gravel cyclists in Scotland? Yeah, I think so. I, I'm trying to think, well, we moved back in about 2013 2015 and and i could go out and i wouldn't see a soul on these rides and i ended up i was quite fit coming back so i trained for kind of 24 hour racing and stuff like that so i was doing a lot of miles and i would rarely see anyone and it was a novelty to see tire tracks 
And definitely over the next kind of five years, I've gone from feeling like I'm the only one doing this to seeing tire tracks to meet to you know meeting people now and everyone's on gravel bikes pretty much on these as well and yeah it's just been great to see and the the opportunities i guess in scotland as well like i can had a year where i did a different loop from my door pretty much every day I, same trails possibly but in different variations with different variations of them and i just kind of always like change i guess and like variation i don't like riding the same route and i think Having that here is what's attracted me, and obviously that's attracting loads of riders as well to come and kind of explore these these tracks that weren't really being used, I guess. Yeah, from looking at your book, Gravel Ride Scotland, the the terrain just looks amazing. There's a lot of great photography in there. What inspired you to write this book, and you know why is it important to you? Uh, I'd like to have some great story here, but I, I just don't say no to stuff really generally. And someone asked me to do it and I said, yeah, why not? I'll write a book on gravel riding. I know a lot of good routes. So so I, I went for it and yeah, it's kind of where I am now, but I, it, it didn't take much because I've been doing so much riding. It, it, it kind of came naturally as to where I thought it should be. And the, the, the plan behind it formed quite quickly as to, I really wanted destinations within Scotland for gravel riding. So there's one here where I am because there's, there's so much gravel riding and there's about six or seven in the book based around these kind of hubs of where I think there's really good clusters of gravel rides. And that came together quite quickly. And I was really kind of passionate about this idea of centers of gravel riding, centers of excellence, you could call it kind of for gravel riding and getting these routes around those. And yeah, I was really keen to have it that kind of mix between a guide, traditional guidebook you put in your pocket and a coffee table kind of inspirational piece, because I really want to get some of my photography in it, which is something I've kind of done over the trips for the last 10 years or so, kind of worked up top skills through, through all those kind of adventures. And yeah, and it just fitted really nicely together. And I was, yeah, just got more and more excited about it, I guess, as I started putting it together. So as you started to sort of divide up the country, are those geographic areas that, that the chapters are in effectively, are those oriented around like where the terrain is, or are those areas of Scotland that everybody talks about? Yeah, it's an interesting one, because Gravel riding doesn't necessarily fit with where the hotspots of tourism are in Scotland. So the West Coast and the islands are really beautiful and stunning. But actually, partly the weather and the climate and the rocky landscape there, you often find that the gravel tracks are really quite rough and hard work. The tracks often go one way. So they go to a beach or they go to a farm or a hilltop. So you can't link them together. So actually, some of the natural destinations in Scotland don't work for gravel. So the south where I am now works really well because we've got an abundance of forests, uh, moorland, old drove roads where the cattle used to be kind of driven into markets 200 years ago. So some, some really good historic routes as well. And that's kind of, yeah, I guess reflected across Scotland. So they're not your traditional kind of places to go in Scotland, but they're still amazing places. They've got castles, they've got locks, they've got mountains, but but they're not the kind of hotspots that, that you might come over if you're doing like a a must-do tour of Scotland. So I think there's, yeah, it's nice for people coming over to get to see a little bit more. I know it's a bit cheesy going real Scotland, but, you know, a little bit away from the get out of your car and take a photo of this mountain that everyone does in Scotland. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that as gravel cyclists, that's something we all appreciate, just even in our own backyards, just being able to see things that the, the majority of people aren't ever visiting just because of the range in which we get with these bikes if you've got a good sense of adventure. One of the yeah. things I one of the things I liked about the book was there was a couple pages on sort of the history of gravel in Scotland, not the sport of gravel cycling, but just gravel in general. And as a as an American, I just thought it was really interesting to read about how these roads arrived in Scotland and what they were for originally. Do you want to spend a couple minutes just talking about 
briefly that the history because I think it's novel from a, a U.S. perspective anyway. Yeah, I really enjoy putting that in, and I think yeah, I hope it yeah is inspiring people because each gravel track has a story behind it here, and I guess they all do. But here in particular, they can be kind of categorized into these time periods, and we go back to the Roman periods when the Romans invaded the UK and they built these classic Roman roads, which are all in straight lines, and some of those kind of crossed into Scotland. And that's where the history of gravel starts in this book. So we talk about the surface, as you say, which so, so these were kind of gravel, early gravel, Roman gravel roads, and the legacy of those still exists today. So some of the routes will follow Deer Street is, is one of the famous Roman roads, goes straight <laughs> up north. So that's kind of where we kind of start with the history of it. And then the next key kind of development, I guess, is, is what I touched on before is these drove roads, which is it's mind boggling, really. It's where they took the cattle from the highlands or from the fells to the market. But we're not talking, say, a 10-mile 10, 10 trip. We're talking the length of the country, which I know in the US is probably not massive, but they drove them down to London from Scotland, which is, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred miles. They were walking with cattle to sell them at the market, then they'd walk back again. And they did that on these routes across the, the, the highlands, essentially, all the way. And, and these became established trading routes. They got better surfaced. And a lot of them, yes, yeah, still exist. So a lot of them are tarmacked into to main routes and road routes but a lot of them existed these gravel roads so gravel tracks so yeah i think there's quite a few points out in the book the next kind of stage is scotland's history it's when the english i'm trying to choose my words carefully here as an englishman but when the english basically came up and imposed their rule let's say to join join part of the union so scotland became part of the united kingdom and to do that there was the, the kind of uprisings against it from the, the scots and the, the English built quite a lot of military roads to kind of quash this in the 1700s. And a lot of those were built to a very good standard and stone bridges across rivers and widespread on the maps. And, and they are generally the, the backbone, a lot of the big gravel routes that, that we now ride in Scotland. Again, a lot of them are, are now tarmac roads, but a lot of them still exist in, in pretty similar form to what they were like two, three hundred years ago. And you can kind of imagine these kind of legions of soldiers marching through the mists and the fog from ruined fort to ruined castle. It's quite evocative. It's yeah. It's an interesting time in Scottish history, really, and gravel's at the heart of it. And then the next thing really is is the big estates we have here. So we call them estates, the, the kind of landed gentry and the, the upper class bought huge swathes of Scotland to go basically hunting and, and shooting as a as recreation. And to do that, the, the Highland clearances, they basically pushed out all the, the, the Scots and a lot of the locals who lived there. And, and a lot of them then emigrated out to North America and, and lost their homes and livelihood. Chapter in Scottish history. And, and from that, a lot of tracks were lost because the houses and the villages went. But actually, the new estates put in a lot of tracks. And we're seeing that again more recently coming up to, to kind of modern day. They're putting a lot of Land Rover tracks or Jeep tracks to, to access the estates for shooting still. And, and that's controversial in some causes but for gravel riding it just opens up miles and miles of these gravel tracks that we have the right to access in scotland which is another key factor so we have an open access code which allows us to responsibly access pretty much any track we see so long as it's not conflicting kind of with the land use or, or kind of industry that's operating on it so so that basically means we can go anywhere so all these these tracks exist and we we can plot them and, and ride them which is really good so yeah, yeah I, I saw that I saw that legal note in the book and found that fascinating again as a North American and I remember also experiencing this in New Zealand. It's just it makes so much sense. If there's land and you're using it responsibly, you're welcome to enjoy it and there's no impediments across the board. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I, I moved to Scotland because in England, you, we, yeah, you don't have that in England. We have it in Scotland. And yeah, it's responsible access. So it is, it is thinking about kind of your actions and um, taking note of what what countryside is being used for but yeah yes amazing yeah i couldn't 
not live somewhere where we can do that. I think you, you just take it for granted after a while. Yeah. When you think about inviting people to Scotland to ride, what type of equipment do you think is best? Does it, you know, in the US, I think it varies so dramatically. Like you can, you know, you can be in Florida riding dirt roads and be on a glorified road bike versus, you know, here in Marin County, I want big tires and Frankly, I'm a fan of suspension on gravel bikes. I think generally expect it a little bit rougher than what I think you're used to over there because I think our kind of dream gravel is probably more your standard gravel where it's smooth and, and not too bumpy. It's generally a bit more rocky, a bit coarser. And in the book, I grade it from one to five, one being kind of your smooth gravel grinding kind of race kind of tr- tracks that you can kind of think of as those, those long races. Um, whereas we, we generally sit in the middle where we have kind of quite slightly coarser gravel which is rougher on the upper body so putting in some kind of suspension isn't a bad idea it's not essential but getting those tires up to at least i think up to in the book 42 millimeters as a, as a minimum on a 650 or 700c setup but i generally run near a 47 to 50 millimeter tire to be honest just to give that a bit more and comfort I, I don't have suspension on my bike but i know more and more people are kind of putting the, the stems and the, the forks on as well just to give them a, a little bit more give on some of the rougher stuff but yeah that's probably the key bit yeah. And on, on the routes, are you, what type of climbing do you experience in Scotland? It's all relative. It's, it's quite steep. The hills can be quite, um, quite short. They can go on as well. So it gets, the highest kind of point is around 750 meters, I think, off, off the top of my head in the book. So that's probably about, it could be up to five or 600 meter climb in one go. It's pretty unusual to do that size climb. They're generally around 300 meters at a time, but actually it can be pretty relentless because you're going up and down throughout the ride to the, yeah, the usually over a thousand climbing per route for a kind of the average route, I'd say. And some of them up to about a couple of thousand as well. So, so yeah, expect quite a lot of climbing. And I think the gear ratios I recommend as well is, is have something below a one-to-one ratio just to give you a bit of help up the hills as well, because yeah. they are quite steep in places. Now, as you were designing routes, did you spend a year traveling through Scotland and riding every road you could? Yeah, well, it, it was a COVID kind of project so as well. So we went into lockdown and I could kind of get out on my own often easier. So I, I was doing a lot of it on my own and riding big routes, linking as many as I could together. And you have a weekend where nothing works and you, you've tried all these new routes and they're just not quite up to scratch. Or you have a weekend where you get three out of it and you think, well, these three are brilliant individual routes. And I kind of combined a few of them into, which I think is the beauty of the book as well, actually, is you can combine them into bikepacking routes quite easily. So the clusters of routes across Scotland it's pretty obvious and it does give tips on how you can link them together. And I actually researched quite a lot of them by, by linking them into, I put my bikepacking bags on and, and spent, spent like a long weekend riding them all together to kind of get a feel for them. And again, with Scotland, you can wild camp, you know, you're free to wild camp on that route yeah. wherever you find a nice yeah. spot as well. Were you discovering sort of tidbits of GPX files and different things online to give you a hint that this area of Scotland might be ripe for your exploration? I really tried not to. And it's funny because then you, I get accused sometimes on, online, I notice when I read some of the kind of review comments and things, oh, he's stolen my route. And you think, well, I really, I really didn't steal your route. It's just a coincidence because I tried really hard to kind of look at the base maps and try and plot it from scratch um, and not look at routes. So I did something different. And I think, yeah, as a result of that, that yeah, there's obviously overlap with stuff that's already out there, but there's quite a lot of different twists and things as well because I tried to do it from scratch. But I had a lot yeah. of time during lockdown as well, so <laughs> I did a lot of map reading. Right. And you touched on this before. It wasn't that you wanted to methodically go through the entire country of Scotland and throw your bike on every mile or kilometer. 
you were really just focusing on what are the best areas to ride and what are going to be the best experiences for riders coming to Scotland. Yeah, I think I, I, I wouldn't call it the very best 28 routes in the whole of Scotland because this could possibly be one in the far north, but that isn't. I, I just don't think if you get a guidebook where they're dotted all over the country, you're never going to ride more. Actually, if you stay for a weekend or a long weekend or even a week in some places, you'll ride all of those routes. So you'll go somewhere else and you ride all of those routes. And you'll actually ride all the routes in the book probably quite easily. And if you're dotting them all over, you won't. So, so yeah, it was a deliberate kind of focus not to explore every hidden corner um, of Scotland, but focus on where I thought the best stuff was going to be for people coming to, to ride. Yeah. And in your mind, you know, what is a great Scottish route? What are some some of the few of the check marks you would love to see if you were bringing someone on their only ride they're going to do in Scotland? Good question, eh? The one that seems to be going down pretty well so far is something called the the Calendar Monster Loop, which is 128 kilometers. And it's got a bit of everything. It's got steep climbs. It's got really remote tracks that go past Boffies. So kind of little overnight shelters that are old cottages. So you're taking some of that kind of heritage. comes down to some of the big locks in the middle of the country and then you get some great views of some of the bigger mountains and Monroes as we call them which are generally above a thousand meters in height so yeah it takes in a bit of everything and at 128 kilometers it's it's I think it's the longest day route in the book so yeah it's a challenge it's rough it's long it's remote so yeah that's gone down it has a bit of everything so that's gone down really well I think yeah I just really enjoyed some of the hidden gems where I, I didn't expect there to be such good riding and such history and things along the way and so there's other routes where you've got castles i never knew existed down near, near me there's a there's an amazing atmospheric castle that, that i never knew was there and it's just in the moors and the track is perfect to it so so yeah there's lots of hidden gems in there but i think yeah having a little bit of everything in there is is great on these yeah yeah as a north american i think coming over there anytime you kind of come across a dilapidated castle or an overnight rock you know structure or even those stone bridges you mentioned in the history of the development of gravel. I think it's just, I, for me, it would be super novel to just be riding those past those types of bits of history. Yeah. Yeah. Now we take that for granted. I guess, oh, there's a castle just over there. Yeah. Uh, there's a 1500s mo- monastery just opposite my house where the monks used to live in <laughs> like 500 years ago. And it's just like, oh yeah, it's just where the kids play. It's quite, it's quite cool. Yeah. Really. Offline, we were talking about how Scotland is home to some dramatic weather. What's the best time of year, if you're recommending someone from the outside to come over to Scotland, what's the best time of year to do some Scottish? We're kind of in it, to be honest. I think May into June is usually good weather. It's long days, long, long daylight hours. You know, you can be riding in the north till midnight almost, which is great. The midges haven't come out, which is a key consideration. So they're not mosquitoes. These, these are smaller. They're just a nuisance, really, rather than anything but they do come out in force in the summer so this time of year is quieter for that yeah the daylight the warmth the sunshine i guess it's usually pretty reliable yeah. now the mid like july time is i was gonna say monsoon season but it's not quite like, it's, um, it's just wetter generally in july and august in scotland so yeah and you've got the midges it can get a little bit oppressive like a little bit clammy we don't get heat i should say as well compared to what you guys get but you know it can be kind of close and midges and things so it's not quite as nice as when it's fresh and springtime is it's pretty nice here. yeah yeah and I realize this next question may be akin to choosing your favorite child, but if you had to point to three or four routes in the book that you really believe are, are must-dos if you're visiting Scotland, what would they be? And give uh, us a little bit of the geography of where in the country relatively they would, they would sit. So the northeast, the area called the Cairngorms National Park is definitely a, a must-visit for, for gravel riders because it's it's absolutely stunning. It's got a lot of native caledonian 
pine forest and in between it there's these quartz sand like white yellowy kind of tracks that glimmer in the sunshine as you go across uh, and it's absolutely beautiful and it goes past the royal family's highland estate at balmoral which is is pristine and like the, the tracks on that estate are pristine as well and you, and you can ride ride on those tracks and you might bump into kind of the royal land rover as you go past sometimes it's, it's just absolutely beautiful and the work they've done to preserve the, the pine forest there so there's lots of wildlife as well so that the kengongs has got about three routes up there and i think they're all absolutely crackers to be honest so definitely up there I'm trying to think where else there's too many options eh? there's because you've got 28 routes was it in the book yeah i'm trying to think i'm trying to pick another i'm biased to where i am in the south is is is, is off the kind of normal track because people head north but here we've got this kind of really quiet empty relatively isolated kind of feeling in the hills down here which is just south of edinburgh and there's a couple of routes here which take you through some kind of really nice relatively less steep and kind of more rolling but but equally beautiful and, and like quite a lot of like i say castles and heritage along the way as well so, so there's a few routes here i would definitely because it, it's quite easy to get to as well if you're flying into edinburgh it's quite a quick like it's 20 miles, 20 miles away. So it's not far at all. So yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you're coming to Scotland, chances are you're going to want to visit Edinburgh if you hadn't already, because it's such an amazing city. So to, to be able to pop out and do a little riding there and what, would you take a train to get up to the, to sort of the North if you had your bike? Uh, yeah. What coming here to the South, our buses, the, the kind of scheduled buses, which, um, run pretty regularly take bikes so they have bike spaces within the, the bus so you're not putting them on the back you just roll them in the bus um and then you take your bikes down which is really cool but yeah north to the highlands yeah trains are your best bet you have a word of warning usually you have to book them in advance just to warn but we're, we're getting better and better we're getting more dedicated bike carriages coming in scotland which is really cool to see so they have 20 spaces a carriage kind of dedicated to just bikes so so that's yeah it's getting easier and easier but yeah the train's up in a good way yeah, yeah exciting What's next for you? Do you have any more riding projects ahead of you or any, frankly, any adventures on the bike that you're able to go off on? Well, I'm enjoying talking about bikes because I've actually had quite a nasty injury on in my shoulder. So I've been off the bike for two months now, kind of, yeah, a fracture of collarbone and AC oh, joint no. dislocation. So yeah, it's got a, quite a lot of metal work in there, which is trying to heal. So I'm planning a lot of things and, and the book has gone down really well. I'm really pleased with how it's gone down. So the publishers are saying... What, what do you want to do next? So I'm thinking of different things to, to do around a different version, probably of gravel rides as well. And yeah, probably later in the year, a bikepacking trip somewhere, probably in Europe, probably to, towards Italy or somewhere. So it's, it's kind of on the horizon. So uh, do you think yeah. your next gravel book would be about, uh, continue to be about the, you know, the UK or would you, I know you've been all over the world. Well, the, the publishers tell me that my Central Asian travels are too niche, to, 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 but I might self-publish a book on that anyway, because I think it's quite cool. I, I just love that area of the world. So so I think there's one there. In terms of what I'll do for Scotland, I think there's there's probably a longer, a section of longer routes would be cool to do sort of bikepacking routes that aren't currently yeah. kind of official ones. I think that's what I've kind of got in mind to start working on and starting to plot a few ideas around that as well. So I think from a book point of view, that would kind of be next, but I I'm keen to get out on an adventure and I've missed, as I've said, the best time of year in Scotland as well, sitting, sitting, talking about bikes and writing about bikes, which is, yeah, I'm keen to get out of this. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for putting the effort into putting this book out there. As I mentioned offline, I'm a big fan of the idea of gravel travel and without guidebooks like this that help just give you a starting point for what regions you should look at and give you a little bit of information. It's just hard to get off the dime. So hopefully this is going to bring a lot more riders to Scotland to enjoy the beautiful country there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And it's yeah, great to talk to you about that Scotland and, and gravel riding in general. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, cheers.
So that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Big thanks to Ed Shute for talking to us about gravel riding in Scotland. I'm super intrigued by what he had to say. Big thanks to our friends at Athletic Greens for supporting the show. Remember, visit athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. If you're interested in connecting with me, I encourage you to join the Ridership. It's our free global cycling community. That's www.theridership.com. And if you're able to support the show financially, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Thank you.